our model is to optimize for speed. Like we we are looking for businesses that can grow very quickly. And so those businesses tend to be led by people that move fast and are very precise and very specific about what it is they're trying to do. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. podcast for founders with ambitious ideas venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable insightful and authentic stories to help you realize your vision welcome to sureshot entrepreneur my guest today is the founder and managing partner at restive ventures he focuses on investing in startups that build the future of financial services we're going to learn more about what that means Ryan, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Oh, thanks for having me, Gopi. Excited to be here. Tell us about yourself, starting with where you grew up. You grew up quite close to Silicon Valley, but not really in Silicon Valley. You were in Tahoe. Yeah, yeah. I moved to Tahoe when I was about five. Before we moved to Tahoe, we actually lived in San Francisco for about a year. Some of my first memories were actually actually in San Francisco, although, I mean, obviously a different place and I had no real connection, obviously, to tech as a, as a four-year-old, but I had really fond memories of living in the city. So yes, as I got older and could make decisions on where I wanted to live, I wanted to go, go back to the Bay Area and be in the city. So it always was close to my heart. But yeah, I grew up in Lake Tahoe, which is a nice place. If you're from Northern California, you're aware of it. So I spent a lot of time outdoors and I got to be a pretty good skier by the time I left. When I was 16, though, I moved to Las Vegas. I actually graduated high school in Las Vegas. Very interesting. You were almost a local to Silicon Valley in Reno, Tahoe, and then you moved to Las Vegas. How did you get into tech? Like, What attracted you to Silicon Valley in the end? Actually, I'm probably more interested in financial services early on. In high school, I had a job at Wells Fargo Bank as a teller. That was one of my first jobs I had. So I was always interested in financial services. And I was also interested in entrepreneurialism. After college, I briefly had my own business, which was a candy business. I was actually in the toffee business. I did that for a little while. And it was like, it's a very seasonal business. So after Christmas, the toffee business really dropped off. I needed to find <laughs> something else. And I got a job with a startup up here in San Francisco that was in the travel and tourism space. They have a product called the GoCard, which is basically like it turns all the attractions in the city into like one ticket you can buy and kind of go around to all of them. I got a job there and that was my first venture-backed startup. And like many people join venture-backed startups, it didn't fully work out, at least for me. At some point, I hiccup in the road and you know, maybe did a down round or something happened. I ended up losing that job and I went to graduate school. I think between the two of them, between an interest in financial services and entrepreneurialism, kind of started to circle around kind of what is now fintech but that was a while ago now you went from selling candies to deeper parts of financial services and after grad school and eventually you decided to start your own venture fund that's like a very interesting route in your career why is venture capital interesting to you well, so there's a little bit more linearness to the path, honestly. I'd had this job with a startup, so I saw how tech companies worked, and I thought that was really interesting. And I'd always had this interest in, in financial services, and in particular around financial inclusion. When I went to graduate school, it was really to study microfinance and how to think about improving access to capital and emerging markets for financial inclusion issues. That's what took me to Yale. I spent a couple of years there. And then after finishing that, I actually worked about five years in emerging markets. And I worked all over the world and eventually was running a strategy practice for a small boutique consultancy, almost the entirety of the business I was running was in thinking around how to leverage technology to expand financial services. We did a lot of work on mobile money and mobile banking. I remember actually, this is about 2013, 
when I was kind of looking to transition to the next thing. And I went to an event where I heard a really famous VC speaking at the time. And there was a Q&A afterwards. And I'd ask, like, you know, why isn't there more venture capital money flowing in emerging markets? And he was like, well, it's just too far away. You know, we like to kind of invest pretty close and like no one really wants to be investing in like Africa. No one knows that market at all. Sometimes even Tahoe is too far away. Yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> East Bay is too far away sometimes. And so I think it was illuminating both on how much ventures changed, but also at how little attention was really being focused in the venture community on financial services, even that late. So when I had an opportunity, I worked briefly for Silicon Valley Bank on a payments team and really got to know the US market there and was there, you know, only onboarded Coinbase into the US banking system. But a lot of time with Stripe and Square and Uber, Airbnb in the early days, and really saw firsthand just how challenging it was for startups to engage with the financial services ecosystem. I assumed up until that point in my career that the US was a pretty efficient market and that these startups were basically kind of either chipping around the edges or maybe weren't really doing anything that transformational. And I realized that the US market's actually very backwards, very inefficient, very closed off to most economic participants in our society. So when I made the move into venture, I had also an unconventional start. I had an opportunity to work with a nonprofit, which is now called the Financial Health Network, and then JP Morgan Chase to launch an accelerator to support our early stage fintech companies. So that's where I got my start investing. And there's elements of the model that we brought to what is now Restive that date from that. Really thinking around how do we help unblock the path for founders as they grow and scale their businesses and help them move more quickly. In 2007, I met Mohamed Yunus. That's the year he won the Nobel Prize. Uh And he's that leader in microfinance. I saw the opportunity in emerging markets to build financial services solutions. And I think the opportunity is still huge. Mm -hmm. But I see where you're coming from with the experience in tech, startups, and in financial services. You truly believe that venture capital plays a very important role in bringing innovation to financial services. Even in the US, there's a massive opportunity. Oh, absolutely. There's obviously very large opportunities in emerging markets just in the number of people that are served by it and how kind of non-existent the banking system is. But in the US, it's actually a much larger market. If you're looking at it from just a market perspective, the US financial service industry is probably the largest concentration of revenue and profits really in the industry globally. It accounts for about 15 to 20% of the US GDP. And the US is obviously a very large market. So there's really huge opportunities in this market to disrupt the incumbents and obviously to build many meaningfully large businesses. I think it's easy to kind of overlook just because of how advanced our economy is. But I really think this is one area where there's really just huge untapped opportunities still. So let's talk about Restive Ventures. It was previously called Financial Venture Studios. What is Restive Venture about? What is your focus? What kind of companies do you invest in? Ideally, we want to be that first institutional partner. We're very comfortable taking very early stage risk. We are happy to be first money in. And we work to systematically connect our founders to the broader financial services ecosystem. We think of that ecosystem as really having four constituent parts. So there's potential partners. If you're touching money in any way, shape, or form, you need to work with other people. The financial services ecosystem is actually quite intertwined. So building those relationships with banks, insurance companies, payments companies, now even larger fintech companies, often takes founders a lot of time and it can result in a lot of false starts and slow them down. So what we want to do is after we invest, work to systematically connect our founders to those partners. If they're working in a regulated space, the one opportunity where you can actually really build a meaningful relationship with regulators and policymakers is at the pre-seed and seed stage, somewhat counterintuitive. 
competitive. But at that stage, you're still kind of a plucky entrepreneur. You're the underdog. Everyone wants to root for you. And so it creates opportunity to build meaningful long-term relationships. We spend a lot of time helping our founders connect to downstream investors. So we think these businesses can, by definition, have to be very large and are going to need to raise a decent amount of capital. We want to help our founders build those relationships quickly. And then by working with our founders and cohorts of firms together, we can help them build connectivity with each other and help them build some community. At the end of the day, an investor doesn't really know what you're going through as a founder. I mean, intellectually, we might. Some of us, both my partners have been founders before. And so you remember that, but that's very different than being in the trenches. By batching up our companies after we invest and taking them through this experience together, they can build some real meaningful relationships between them. I think that's really useful as you're dealing with a lot of blocking and tackling and have peers that are going through the same thing. We invest additional capital in our company. So our initial check size is usually about a quarter million dollars. Then we'll look to rapidly scale our position up until including through the Series A. We'll go up to usually about 2.5 million of principal exposure. So you like to be the first institutional capital partner for founders. And you help the founders connect with other founders so they can learn from each other. And you stay for the long term by supporting them through the journey of building the business. Let's go to that starting point where you meet the founders. As the first institutional investor in the company, what happens in that first meeting? Feel free to give examples of companies that you've invested in. What was the conversation about? What did you look for? What came through in that first meeting? So it's never too early to talk to us. We really try to avoid ever saying, hey, this is too early. That could be a crutch for other obvious problems that you just don't want to tell the founder. Can I ask why? I kind of know I'm in the same space as well. Why is it hard to tell the founder the real reason? Well, sometimes you don't know. I actually think that that's it. You don't know. It's easy to hear something's too early. Everything is too early. There are public companies that are too early for other public investors. You can always say something's too early. In some cases, objectively true. If you're a growth stage investor, you're a near seed stage founder, that's probably a waste of your time. That investor knows that in that case. I think when you're a seed investor and you're encountering a founder and you're saying, ah, I think it's probably too early. I'd like to see some more traction. I think it's like, A, you didn't really understand the story. You didn't really understand what they're trying to do. B, you understood it, but you don't like it and you want them to prove elements of it that would just be additional evidence. Or three, you understood it and you don't like it and you just don't want to say why you don't like it. But in all cases, it's a useful thing to say. It does founders a great disservice because even saying, hey, I don't think you guys are credible founders is better than saying something's too early. Now, obviously, we wouldn't say that unless person's really, really a jerk or something. But you can figure out like, hey, we'd like to see more of this type of experience in the team, or these are the types of things we'd want to see to demonstrate that you solved this problem or mitigated this risk. You turn it into a positive discussion in the end. But founders, when they hear from investors that this is too early, it can mean many things. I put you on the spot to answer this question, but thanks for sharing your candid thoughts on this. Let's go back to what happens in that first meeting. Can you give an example of a startup? Like what happened in that first meeting? What was the conversation about? Yes. One of our first first company investments we made where we were the first money in was a company called Fairplay. We have a product that helps eliminate bias. If you're using algorithms to underwrite loans, those algorithms have the same biases that people do. What Fairplay does is their software looks for those biases and then eliminates them in real time so that that consumer business that got turned down can get retargeted or reevaluated and approved. This isn't extending credit or expanding the aperture of what the target is. It's just making sure that your target is your target. So if you say, hey, I'm going to prove everybody that's a credit score above 660 and makes more than $50,000 a year, and you're rejecting people who fit that bill because there's some sort of bias in your model, that's what Fairplay does. We met this team as we had the idea. They both had left another company where they were doing something very similar. They'd known each other for a really long time. 
And each of us, there's three of us on the investment side, as far as meeting companies and evaluating them, we all have a little bit of a different approach of what we look for. And all of us talk to every founder, usually independently before we invest, because it allows us to get a different perspective on what we're looking for. I generally like to have the founders to just give me like a two minute on the business, like just a high level. I prefer not to get a pitch with a deck. I find that it wastes a lot of time. But if a founder prefers to do that, we'll let them do it. You mean during the meeting? Yeah, during the meeting. Yep. I mean, I usually don't need like that much. I mean, usually, sometimes it's easier just to hear like, okay, hey, what are you trying to do? I'm trying to do this. Cool. All right. Now tell me like, why? Like, what do you like? What's your insight? And so you're looking usually for someone who has a really special insight in the market. They have some knowledge that is not widely held. What I look for is if their internal logic is coherent. I try to really listen for that. So, hey, I got a fintech that I'm going to make payments on the moon. Okay, why is the moon a good place to do payments? Why are you the right person to do that? And not be like, oh, that sounds idiotic. There's no reason for payments on the moon. What exactly is this person trying to do? What are the pieces of the table they're going to bring to it? Why do you think this is going to work out? And really listening to their logic and their internal way of thinking about it, rather than imposing my own worldview on the idea. And then trying to see, does that logic make sense? That's really what I'm looking for at a first meeting. So as a first institutional investor, you see a lot of outlandish ideas that are kind of borderline crazy, but there's an internal logic to explain why it makes sense. And when some of these assumptions come true, there will be an opportunity in the future. That's how the founders explain it. How long does it take for you to go from the first meeting, first point of interaction to say, when you decide that, yeah, this is a company I want to invest in? If they're really strong, within a day. As short as within a day. Can you describe that process? Like what happens? You mentioned that you like to meet founders independently and also consult with your partners later together. How does a typical process work for you? Yeah. So what usually you'll find out about a company. We either can be like a, they directly source it. We get a referral. We also get cold inbound. Today, I got two really good cold inbounds. I just got a random email from someone never heard before and some other guy. Kind of a weird story. Uh, from Twitter. I'll hop on a call with both those individuals. I usually schedule a half an hour. And if they have some materials, especially if it's a cold inbound, I'll probably want to see a deck or something to make sure this makes sense or like have a look at the website. But if it's a referral, like if you send someone, I'm obviously just going to kind of talk to them. And then if you sent me something that was like outside of my range, was more technical, I'd probably bounce it to my partner, Tyler Griffin. And if it was something where you really a small business, I'd, I'd bounce it to Cameron, our other partner. But both of them just have more experience in those verticals. But short from that, I'd probably just do the call. The first call, just making sure they understand what we do, what our box is, check size, and and getting a sense of what the deal terms are, just so we also make sure it's going to be a fit from that range. And then we'll have this usually about a half an hour long call. And like I said, I'll usually ask for like the two minute, but if the founder wants to walk through a deck, like we'll just kind of follow their lead. I'll then figure out like, is this something that we should spend time on? And if it's not, I'll try usually to turn them down on the call. I'll try to say, hey, not a fit because of X, Y, Z. But you know, if and if and if it's not a fit from a structural thing, like let's say they're they work at the outside the United States, or they're not a U.S. company, or they're further along, then I you know might offer to, to introduce them to somebody else. But for the most part, we'll try to turn them down right there, or take it back to the team. We have two calls during the course of the week: one on Monday where we run through our whole pipeline, and then the other one back half of the week when we just kind of say, hey, is there anything that's really interesting that we need to prioritize? If it was a really good call, I'll put it on Slack and be like, hey, someone else needs to talk to this person like today. And we'll try to get that process done very quickly. That happens extraordinarily rarely. I mean, that's like maybe once or twice a year. More normally, we'll then do a call or I'll bounce it to another person. 
And then that other person will do a similar call structure. Everyone has their different way of doing it. After two people have talked to the founder, we'll put our heads together and say, okay, is this worth us digging in? And at that point, we try to determine who's going to kind of lead that process. Or if we really think there's a reason for the third person to talk to them, like we'll have that. But we'll try to have a point of view there after two and either make a go forward or not decision. So if you've talked to two people and we're still debating, then we're looking pretty seriously at it. Every deal, we need to talk to all three of us. Sometimes we'll bring in a senior advisor named Tom Brown. His background in law and payments, and we've worked with him since we started the company. And sometimes we'll bring him in if we need another view. And after you've talked to all three of us, we'll make a decision. And then we'll usually offer to invest. How many companies do you invest in on average in every year? Maybe about 15. A little more than uh, one a month. Yeah. What percentage of company you meet eventually turn into one of these 15 investments? How many companies do you roughly meet? I think probably somewhere between five and 700 a year. We also run an application process. So we'll run an application process before we kick off each of these cohorts. The throughput there is relatively low. It's maybe about 1% of the companies we'll invest in come through the application process. Uh, but it's not that much dissimilar from this, the, the top of funnel, the general one. But that also helps us to kind of expand the circle a little bit of who we're talking to. If we're just relying on other venture funds or even people who might know enough to reach out to us, we end up unintentionally excluding a lot of businesses. So the application process helps us to really make sure we're not missing anything. And I think really lowers the barrier to getting in front of us. The founder doesn't need to always come through warm introduction. They can apply through your website. Or they just email us. Cold introductions are fine. Yeah, we take cold emails all the time. I mean, a well-written cold email is great. And if you send emails to everyone at the company, though, or, or it's just like obviously spam, then like that doesn't count. But most emails where it's like, I can tell it's been written to me. It's a fintech business. I mean, pretty low bar. If you have a fintech business and you can personalize the email, hi, Ryan, I know you invest in seed stage fintech. I'm probably going to read the rest of the email. <laughs> I want to talk about fintech and trends in the market. Let's finish this conversation. Yeah. No is the most common answer. What's the mm -hmm. most common reason to say no? Let's say out of the 700 companies you meet, like two, 300 of them are probably an immediate no. So let's forget that. Oh, it's like uh, 500 immediate no. I think it's about 100 odd kind of fintech companies created in the US mm -hmm. each year that are like investable. So investable means you have a plan, you're structured in an appropriate way. You know, you're a C-corp. And where you've actually thought about the capitalization of the company and have thought about the types of investors you want to bring, you put together a team that you know makes sense. I think that's actually a relatively small number. I think it's like 100-ish. And then of those, there's probably maybe a third to a half competitive financing rounds where there's multiple investors that are really excited about doing it. So it's not that many companies. And I'd say the most common reason is like there's an obvious problem with the business. It's not structured properly. There might be a number of other competitors that do it. There's a lot of these evergreen ideas that never really seem to work. There are a lot of businesses that are very much just kind of tracking along broader trends. So like, you know, earlier this year, everything was a Web3 business. Now there's a bunch of AI and the kinds of things. Those are usually not what you're looking for. The businesses that are, I think are real serious efforts at it, the, I'd say the reasons for them not being a good fit are we think people lack of the right skills in the founding team, particularly usually lack of technical skill. That's a big piece of it. Another really common reason for turnout is that you know, the market they're going into might not be that lucrative a market, might not be that big. It might be like a really low margin business where you can just tell that the scale that they would need to arrive to make it really profitable would be kind of beyond the realm of reasonable expectations. One of the more common reasons we have is that we're not going to be that helpful to them. Our model is predicated on us being like the most helpful investor. We start out with a relatively small check and we want to build that position via this very intensive kind of engagement model we have. 
And so that doesn't work if we're not going to be super helpful. If we're going to be just another random small check along for the ride, that's not going to affect the fund performance. You don't want to be a passive investor. You want to be an active investor supporting the founders. What happens if one of the partners really likes the company and another partner doesn't? What can the founder do to get over that hurdle or can they get over the hurdle if one partner doesn't like? It's the third person. Yeah, the three of you. Yeah. There's two possibilities for the founders to encounter challenges. Yeah. That's why we have three people. If I like it and Cameron doesn't like it, then we have Tyler talk to him and Tyler kind of makes a decision. And sometimes Tyler's like, "Ah, I don't really know either. And so we have a debate about it. If someone really loves a business though, they're probably going to prevail. Even if the other two people are kind of lukewarm on it. The passion for something counts more. It's like a vote weighted by your relative excitement. Yeah, voting is the easiest, quickest way to get to an answer, but may not be the most effective way to get to a good solution. Yeah. I see this is very useful for founders. They need to get one partner totally on board or at least two partners on board in a reasonable way. They don't need to get all three partners totally loving the business all the time because the nature of investments, you invest in outlandish ideas. It's totally understandable if one partner has some questions. Yeah, especially if you're talking to like a specialist fund, both of us have specialties and we focus on. And the outlandish ideas are actually pretty rare. It's far more common for me to see like a neobank for X, like that happens all the time, rather than like payments on the moon. Payments on the moon is like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? Like that's a, that never happens. And so the outlandish ones actually tend to get a little bit more resonance. But if you have an outlandish idea, you should be prepared that almost everybody is going to think it's crazy. This is very interesting. Thank you for sharing insider baseball stories. I want to talk about fintech trends. What kind of areas are super interesting to you now? If a founder wants to build a business, yeah. what kind of problems are good to solve right now? So I will say one thing we try to avoid doing, we don't actually do, is map out like areas we want to see innovation in. We've done that in the past and it was counterproductive. It led to founders self-selecting and because I'd say, oh, we're really interested in vertical SaaS solutions. And then we wouldn't see other stuff because oh, they're really only interested in vertical SaaS payments. We actually do not have, as like a policy, like don't have areas we're looking for stuff in. Instead, we want to follow kind of the founder energy. You know, if we have a founder who shows up and like, hey, I think this is a huge opportunity. This is why I have some experience working in this space. I brought together this other person with me who's got the skill that I don't have. We've got a little bit of history working together. We don't need to be brother and sister. You can just be people who met at work or wherever. It doesn't really matter. But you're just kind of set up to solve the problem and you've got a good thesis on what you're going to do. That's a better fit for us. Our model is to optimize for speed. We are looking for businesses that can grow very quickly. Those businesses tend to be led by people that move fast and are very precise and very specific about what it is they're trying to do. That's the kind of stuff where our model is designed for us to move equally quickly. Now, that being said, I think this is a great time to be an investor in the space. It's kind of a bummer time to have a portfolio because it's like it's harder for like the existing companies. But if you're starting out from scratch and you're willing to let the market tell you what these valuations should be, right now it's a very choppy time. We're seeing a lot of pressure on valuations, despite what people say. There's far less activity out there than there was earlier this year. So if you're trying to get a deal done, you need to be receptive to where the market is and think that money is an input and don't worry too much about what those terms are. And you keep it really lean, which is easier because you're not already bloated. I think there's going to be some really ph phenomenal businesses that get started because the underlying dynamics of financial services have not changed. It is still an inefficient market. 
There's way too many banks and insurance and payments companies in this country. The startups, very few of them have reached scale. So they're vulnerable too. And so this is a good time to start something. Some areas where there should be more innovation, I think around compliance and fraud, those problems are exploding. I think that some of the stuff that's happening in crypto markets right now is going to create incredible second order effects. If you're going to start doing some of the verification work there and like tracking fraud, tracking counterparties, there's still not enough innovation on that front. So that's probably the one area where it's like, yeah, there's obviously still a lot of demand. I see you have an optimistic view of the future. You go in with an open mind. You try to avoid having a preconceived notion of what might work, what might not work. You want to listen to the founder to understand what problem they want to solve, why they're passionate about it. And you see lots of opportunities in fintech. The underlying infrastructure still is waiting to be improved. And there are a lot of opportunities for founders to build solutions. The current market conditions are very favorable to new companies. Now, you're not dealing with the bloated cap table and those type of situations that companies have put themselves into in the past two years. If you're starting from scratch, it's a great time to start a new company. We're coming towards the end of our conversation, and I want to ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one? In fintech, there are some interesting nonprofits who operate in the space that do really interesting work, particularly in the Bay Area. It's an organization called Saver Life that helps basically families start to establish savings and provides emergency liquidity, emergency savings products to families across the Bay Area. It leverages technology, so it looks a lot like a startup. And I think the company's done a really phenomenal job of helping to raise a lot of money and helping a lot of people avoid some of these real pitfalls that happen to low-income families. Ryan, thank you very much for spending time with me, sharing insider stories on how you think and how your team thinks about investments, your optimistic views on fintech and why founders should look at this sector more seriously. There are so many stories in your narrative that are lessons for founders to learn from. Thanks so much for spending time with me and sharing your stories. Oh, thank you very much, Gopi. I appreciate being here. Thank you for listening to the SureShot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.